1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the keep your head while all around are losing theirs. Just kidding. It's totally cool to lose your head edition. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, the potential impact on financial markets of a Trump presidency will be joined by NYU professor of finance, Aswath Damodaran to discuss. And then afterwards, my Alphaville colleagues will guide us through the potential macroeconomic impact of a Trump presidency. It's more complicated than you think. And Joining me now as co-host for this entire episode is Alex Skaggs of Alphaville. Alex, how are you?
2: Hi there. I'm good. Are you good? good?
1: Is your head still swiveling on your shoulders? A
2: little bit. So I'm sort of losing my head, but it's it's the way we live now.
1: Well, this might make you feel uh, marginally better. You're maybe the one person in my circle of friends and colleagues who doesn't need to swallow a massive slice of humble pie right now. (laughs) Uh, You said before both Brexit and before the election uh, that those might be the outcomes that, in fact, the levers might win and that Trump might win. What gave you that insight that everybody else in the kind of uh, right-thinking punditocracy totally got wrong?
2: So I have a question for you. Actually, I'm going to turn it around on you and ask you a question. Sure how much time over the past say 10 years have you spent in rural or ex-urban america
1: i'm from uh ex-urban america right um so i i spend at least uh a total of maybe a month a year uh in rural not quite rural but ex-urban america Uh, how about you
2: so I am also from exurban America, okay. and I just spent about four years. I mean, of course, I, I went there in college, but I spent four years there for a school at Washington and Lee University. And the mood between the people who were local in, in Virginia and the students who were a lot of Northeastern people, a lot of people who had come from relatively well-off families, I mean, that was sort of a microcosm of what we're seeing now in, in national politics. And so while most people think that that sort of thing is obvious, just the general breakdown of of trust between the two groups, I think, is really, really significant. Right.
1: And that split by education, I think, might have been the single biggest divide uh, yeah. between the two groups and between the people who voted for leaving and remaining, and then later the people who voted for Clinton versus Trump. I think there was also something mechanical that a lot of people missed too, mm-hmm. which is that The enthusiasm gap between the two sides also meant that there was a big difference in turnout. We definitely saw that in the U.S. election where Clinton got millions fewer voters than Obama did, partly as a result of turnout. Not all of those went to Trump. Uh, They just didn't show up because Trump also got many millions of votes fewer than Mitt Romney did in 2012. Uh, so it's just something to uh, something to keep in mind the next time for all of us. I think a lot of people are going to be doing uh, quite a bit of reassessment of what is knowable going into big elections like this. But enough of the politics because we are here for economics and finance. And joining us now in the studio is NYU professor of finance and blogger Aswath Damodaran. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. We're going to talk a little bit uh, about country risk and political risk, but first I just want to get your take on the reaction of financial markets to the election of Donald Trump. We had first uh, equities surprisingly rising despite what appeared to be uh, signals that they would fall from futures markets, from Japanese
3: markets, and then long-end treasury yields started climbing. Uh, What do you think is behind all this? Well, I think it shows you how unpredictable markets are. But I was actually working on a blog post. It's pretty much what I do. You're going to give us a now? I'll give you a preview I, about the Trump election and the consequences. And actually what I did was I wrote a post about Brexit right after it happened, about both the market reaction and what we could glean out of what happened around Brexit. And I actually took the post and replaced the word UK voters with US voters and Brexit with Trump and it's amazing how we're retelling the same story. It's uh, retelling the same story in the sense of how in the lead-in people expected one thing to happen and how that expectation was, I think, skewed by the fact that the people who write the expectations, make the expectations, live in cities like this one and are so insulated often from the rest of the country that the echo chamber they talk to, everybody kind of agrees this is the way things are going to happen. But I think that The interesting thing was on Tuesday night, as the results were coming in, of course, there was this news story that the Dow was down 800 points and that the market was going to collapse. In fact, the news stories indicated that we're going to open to a calamity the next day because I think they put in the circuit breakers in expecting the market to close. And the market, of course, opens 200 points up. And the reality is if it had dropped 800 points, it would have been an overreaction. And the climbing of 400 points might be an overreaction too because – if you step back and look at the big picture, you, I mean, I'm, I'm going to set aside the social issues and the cultural issues and all the other issues that were played out in this election, focus just on the economics. Here are the five things that where Trump and the markets interact or intersect. The first is what he said about the Fed, which is he said that the Fed is playing a political game that they sh- and in fact, the message he seems to be sending is they shouldn't be raising rates in the future. Now, for some people, this could be good news because if you believe central banks actually set rates, then you should say, well, if Trump is right and he can put pressure on the Fed to not raise rates, the Fed is really under no direct legal pressure to not do things, but then they read the election returns like everybody else. You could view it as good news. From my perspective, central banks have never had the power to set rates. They have the power to tweak rates. I've always believed that low interest rates are the result of Low growth and low inflation for much of the last decade, and at the margin, I think central banks have added you know, twenty basis point effect so i don 't think interest rates are going to change much. The second is could a Trump presidency affect the risk premium again the The link is very weak. The only way you could perhaps argue that risk premiums would go up is if you said, well, Trump is unpredictable, we don 't know what he 'll do, therefore that uncertainty will f- pay out as a larger risk premium. But in a market like the U.S., where 90% of the economy is unrelated to what Trump's unpredictability might do, you might say, well, the risk premium effect is going to be muted. So let's think about cash flows and growth. I think the one box where the Trump effect could be significant is what he said about trade. Because to the extent that he stands behind his words, and you no, know, that's always with a caveat that all politicians say things when they are getting elected that they might not carry through, He's signaled the intent to not just not sign new trade contracts and trade agreements, but also revisit old ones. And this is like game theory, which is if you go back and decide that you're not going to do something in the trade arena, there are going to be people, or you put up tariffs against certain countries, there are going to be other, you could potentially set off a trade war. And that is not good news for anybody involved. That could have an effect on real growth and the market. So that's a potential bad news. It's one box where the uncertainty, I think, could feed into markets going down. But we have to wait and see. But because we don't know yet, uh, that's why
1: you think that markets didn't react to uh, Trump's comments on trade. I think
3: what markets are signaling is not just that they don't know, but that they don't think that he's going to do the things on trade agreements that he said he would. That's basically... The markets could be completely wrong. I mean, Trump's been unpredictable all through this, and he could actually carry through on his promise... Because I think that is the one box where you worry about consequences for growth. And that's a global effect. It's not just U.S. stocks. And the effect is going to be greater, of course, for the multinationals that operate around the globe than it is for companies that might be primarily U.S.-based. So at least for the moment, the market signaling. We don't think that's going to be as serious as we thought it was two days ago. What they learned in the two days, I don't know. But no, that's... the The fourth box relates to the fact that if you if you look at trump 's promises and you look at his agenda, there are three aspects to his agenda. One is that he 's going to roll back Obamacare, which is going to have consequences within the market on healthcare care stocks you 're starting to see that play out in pharmaceutical companies' stock prices going up with the market seeming to assume that. If Obamacare is removed, that pricing power will return to pharmaceutical companies. It
1: wasn't part of that, also because Clinton had signaled that she would actually be very hard a, on pharmaceutical pricing. That also,
3: is, that, so that so it might be a relaxing of that as well as perhaps you know, so on both sides, perhaps there's good news, but. Within the healthcare business, the effects are much more grave for insurance companies, for instance. I'm not sure whether this is, if you remove Obamacare from the mix, will it make them more profitable or less profitable? Initially saying, well, let them get out of those markets where they're losing money, but there are other consequences that come with this. So I would expect some repricing within the healthcare sector because of that. The second thing he signaled, I think, is that, that he at least, that he he plans to spend significant money on infrastructure. So you're seeing all these construction-related, infrastructure-related companies go up. Here he faces a constraint, which is he's also promised to revisit the tax code and cut taxes, right? And if you're going to cut taxes and increase infrastructure spending, you either are going to let the deficit balloon out or you're going to have to come up with new sources of revenues, so again, I'm not sure the market is being realistic in how much it's building in. But I think that's part of the story and why you're seeing some sectors go up is they're looking at parts of its agenda and saying, well, that'll be good for that and that'll be good for that. And they're building into the stock prices. We we'll just have to wait and see whether those numbers can get delivered. And there's a final piece, which is, I think, the tax code and regulatory changes that are coming And there, if you're a business, there are more businesses that are going to benefit from that than lose. There are are some aspects of it where it's a zero-sum game. In energy, for instance, if his intent is to step away from the fossil fuel restrictions that were being put into place by executive order, then you could argue coal mining companies are potentially going to benefit, oil companies are going to benefit, but green energy companies are going to get hurt. There's also the the revisiting of the tax code. And this, I think, is going to happen simply because as I think finally there's a consensus that the U.S. tax code is so perverse and so completely damaged that neither party can live with this for the long term. It's perverse and damaged in two ways. One is our corporate tax rate now is among the highest in the world. So at least the stated tax rate. But we collect about the same amount in taxes as European countries do. So we have the high tax rate, but we don't have the collections. Part of the reason for that is we are one of the six countries left in the world which has a global tax system. We tax companies based on what they make globally, which makes absolutely no sense anymore. It made sense in the 1980s where you had no choice as a U.S. company but to pay those taxes. Today, if you're a multinational, that happens through the accident of history to be U.S.-based you can decide not to be a us company and i think that's that's been brewing under the surface with the with the reversion you know you saw this with the tax inversions that you tried to see with pfizer last year but i think it's under the surface and clearly it's a problem that's only going to get worse there are two ways to fix that problem one is to bring the corporate tax rate in the us down to 20 to 25% Trump has suggested, I think, has a 15% rate. I don't see how you can get to 15% and make up the revenue difference. I think we're going to end up around 25 That's going to take a huge amount of the reason for keeping cash overseas out of the picture. And it's going to be twinned, I think, with some kind of one-time deal, as Congress writes one-time deals, of bringing that $2.5 trillion in trap cash back. And that, I think, is good news for global companies that have been sitting on this cash and saying, what the heck do we do with all this cash now? Uh,
1: Alex, I want to turn to you. Uh, Two questions uh, in response to what Aswath just said, All right? First, uh, in addition to spending a few years at the Wall Street Journal covering the equity markets, more recently, you've been following uh, treasury auctions quite a bit. So the first question is, what do you make of this week's activity? Second, can you just comment a little bit on what Aswath said regarding uh, corporate taxes, something you've looked uh, pretty closely at in terms of Trump's plans?
2: You had a very good point about the questions of revenue. I think that when people are looking at the yield curve this week, for example, on one one side of things, people are saying, okay, infrastructure spending is going to be inflationary. On the other hand, I think they are looking at, at Trump's policies and they're seeing that he has an entirely Republican Congress and no one's sure about how much pushback that Republican Congress could even give him in terms of keeping spending in line. And so, I think there's a good argument to be made that the United States has a lot more ability to spend than the traditional sort of uh, institutions think. Uh, But at the same time, it's very careful to not pretend like you can just print money forever and borrow a ton of money, um, especially when you're getting a little bit more protectionist or if you want to get more protectionist, because then at some point you're asking the same people who you're not trading with to buy your securities. Uh, So I think that it's going to be very interesting to see what happens to the yield curve, and I think that Treasury auctions are going to be an interesting thing, because you can look at the allocation data a few weeks after the sales happen, and I'm really curious to see what the international purchases look like, um, because if global, if global countries, if, if China or, you know, some of the countries that Trump has actually targeted don't buy U.S. debt, I mean, granted, they don't have a ton of other good options, to be fair. But I, I think that'll be sort of an interesting place to look. And we did have a couple of sort of weak auctions this week. I mean, obviously, it's still very early, and we had—we barely ever have trouble actually selling the debt. And it's—I mean, failed auctions aren't actually allowed because the way that the way that the system is set up. Um, but I would sort of keep an eye on that.
1: Okay, uh, and corporate tax reform. Um, What has Trump said he's going to do, or what would you add to what Aswath uh, to Aswath's description of Trump's plans? um, And what do you think uh, the impact would be if he actually is able to carry those out?
2: Uh, Well, I actually have a question, and I have a question for Aswath. When you look at what the banks have been doing, what the bank stocks have been doing this week, um, you have to wonder how much of that is is the regulation aspect? And I know this isn't exactly on the tax code, but I I think you had covered that pretty well, actually. So my question about that, though, is that obviously a steeper yield curve people think are good for banks, and so that should help out the banking industry. But on the other hand, there's this funny sort of response from the financial industry that's saying, like, okay, Trump's been elected, we've got a Republican Congress, this is going to be a deregulation party, essentially. And I'm wondering how much of the rally you would attribute to that versus the steepening of the yield curve.
3: I think banking as a business is in big trouble. It's uh, it's in big trouble partly because it's getting squeezed on both sides. On the one side, its uh, potential for making profits is now much more constrained. And I I don't think that a Republican Congress is going to revisit it because Trump obviously when he looked at his campaign wasn't exactly friendly towards banks in the generic sense. So I think if they revisit any of the uh, any of the restrictions that came in post-2008, it's going to be at the margin. Banks are not going to go back to the pre-2008 world, and they don't want to. They're, they've been burnt to all. On the other side, markets seem to view them as riskier than they used to be because they've lost credibility. Nobody trusts banks anymore. Trust them in the sense of, hey, you tell me you're making money, but we don't know what you're holding back, what big loss you're going to claim two or year, three years now those two things haven't been changed by Trump being reelected to the presidency. So at the margin, though, they're going to get some relief from the immediate consequences of what they thought might happen. Again, this might be just relief that Clinton did not get elected president and have to make much much more significant constraints on what banks can do. So some of that, the, the regulatory aspect, I think, is part of it. But if that's what's driving this rally, then I think it's being vastly overdone because I don't think it's going to provide the kind of earnings relief that these banks are expecting because I think and I call it the way I describe banks is you know, when you invest in a bank, you make a Faustian bargain, which is they don't tell us much about themselves, but we trust that they're run by sensible people and that the regulatory framework works. That's what 2008 broke. We can't unbreak that. So basically, I think that this is a long-term problem that's not going to go away. So if there's any relief rally, it's not going to be long-lasting.
1: Okay, let, let's turn to uh, country risk. Uh, what you've spent uh, a big chunk of your career actually studying this. The, the normal way uh, or the traditional way um, that I think academics have looked at country risk is to wonder – how the specific kinds of risks that exist in say developing countries would affect the operations and sales of multinationals based in the developed world right so sovereign default risk uh, legal risk other kinds of you know destabilizing potential activity that goes on in these countries. One of the uh, running themes on this podcast uh, is the idea or the possibility um, that political risk has migrated very much to the developed world. We see that, uh, for instance, in the populist movements all throughout Europe and now in the U.S. uh, and in other parts of the world, frankly. When you think about some of the things that Trump said on the campaign trail, All right. And let's take you to those. uh, In turn, Uh, the idea that he might, as you said, rip up certain trade agreements and pursue higher tariffs on China and perhaps Mexico, that he might get the U.S. uh, out of NATO or that at least the U.S. would not fulfill its NATO responsibilities in some parts of the world you know, renegotiating the debt was something that he implied he might consider doing, uh, which I think most of us said was just a blatantly irresponsible thing to say. And maybe he would walk that back now. But even so, he's made all of these comments. Does Trump introduce a unique kind of country risk into the U.S., uh, a place where historically people would think, well, no, this this kind of risk doesn't exist in the U.S. That's something for
3: Argentina or something. I call September twelfth of two thousand and eight my last day of innocence because I, that that were, uh, if you'd ask me in September twelfth of two thousand eight to break the world up I'd say on this side of the world are the developed countries, on this side are the emerging markets. So if you if you think about what set them apart. In developed markets, central banks did not play a huge role in, in other than the periods of recession. So central banks actually were independent, and they operated on the premise that you wanted to keep inflation low, and they wanted to preserve the currency. Real quick, September
1: 12, 2008 was the, the day Lehman Brothers failed? That was the okay.
3: Friday that before Lehman collapsed okay. and the crisis began. In emerging markets, you had governments that kind of moved on the mo- moment and had central banks that were not independent, Since September 12th of 2008, I've viewed the world as a much more grayer place. On any given day, as I describe it, the U.S. can act like an emerging market and Brazil can act like a developed market and switch roles. I think... Trump, in a sense, has brought that all to the surface saying, hey, you know what, if you're worried about all these things in emerging markets, they can happen in a developed market. I think we should have been worrying about it for the last nine years anyway, because developed markets have not necessarily acted like the old developed markets for the last nine years. So to, to me, this is more of a continuum in something we saw begin a decade ago. Of developed market countries starting to show many of the characteristics that we're worried about with emerging markets. And emerging market companies sometimes acting more mature than they used to be. And you're getting a convergence in the middle, which means in terms of risk premiums, you're starting to see a convergence between developed and emerging markets as well.
1: Okay. Alex, uh, I want to ask you about one specific kind of US based risk that was prominent throughout the Obama years and that we dealt with again and again and again, which is a debt ceiling breach. Uh, Is there a chance that we're going to skip this Uh, next uh, year because we now have a Republican-controlled Congress and a Republican president?
2: I certainly hope so. The debt ceiling is just an arbitrary, archaic, uh, misguided sort of idea and it will be interesting to see whether the people in Congress who were so, so insistent on the debt ceiling for eight years ago are this time, now that there's one of their guys in the White House, still insistent on the debt ceiling. Because if the chance, you know, it's it's funny because chances are that they won't be. And that'll be good for everyone. But then you're sort of revealing this big... I guess I'll say it, the big hypocrisy, really.
1: It's just such a stupid and unnecessary fight to have yeah. every time. They always solve it at the last minute, but mm-hmm. they put us all through You know, I mean, I think the the, the gray hairs on my beard have mm-hmm. multiplied uh, just because of this one thing. Okay, uh, final uh, topic of our chat with Aswath then. Uh, I have a question about U.S. earnings, right? This is how I've sort of uh, viewed the world the last few years. Uh, the US, uh, or U.S.-based or us companies um, have a couple of problems that are squeezing them from sort of uh, both ends in a way. So on the one hand, you've had uh, strong disinflationary trends in much of the rest of the world, uh, in some cases outright deflation, which gives U.S. companies very little pricing power, right? And then on the other hand, and this is a more recent phenomenon – wage growth is finally starting to tick up. Uh, I think this is, by and large, from a macro perspective, a wonderful thing, and I hope it continues. Uh, and eventually, that can sort itself out because if people make more money, they just spend it, but on other things. So there might be sectoral rebalancing. But temporarily, at least, it means that uh, margins and consequently earnings get squeezed. I wonder what you think is going to happen uh, in the next year or two and whether that... Uh, is a useful prism through which to understand what American companies are going through.
3: We had a pretty good eight-year run in terms of earnings from 2008, all, uh, from 2009, after, after you came out of the crisis and earnings started to climb back. By 2014, we'd climb back to pre-2007 levels, and we continue to climb. The last two years have obviously, we've seen a freezing of earnings, perhaps decline maybe 4 or 5%. I think that the big wild card is China. For a decade, I think we've used China as it's bit, basically China has been the difference between having a global real growth rate that looks healthy and a global real growth rate that's zero. If you take China out of the equation over the last ten years, there's been no real growth in earnings. It's come from China and and everything related to China, what it does to commodity prices. I don't think China is going back what it was. In fact, I would be surprised if real growth in China is higher than 3% right now, no matter what the official statistics say. Some people think it's zero. It could be zero. And and part of it is just when you're the second largest economy in the world, there is no way you're going to grow at 10% or even 5%. And I think that effectively for the next decade will be the biggest drag on corporate earnings. Because if you take China out of the picture... Where's the global growth coming from that's going to allow all these – because now we have a world of multinationals all competing. So part of what you talk about is disinflation is this loss of pricing power that companies used to have because they control local markets. That's now gone. So I think you're going to see competition eat away at one part of earnings. And without China, global real growth is going to stay low. So from that perspective, looking forward, I'm not that optimistic about earnings going back to an 8% growth rate or a 6% or even a 4% growth rate. I think we're in for an extended stint. Alex,
1: final word
2: to
3: you. What do you think
1: about
2: that
3: really depressing message?
2: Well, I've, I've heard that sort of message before. There was a really good Harvard Business Review piece about that that basically just said, hey, multinationals, the fun's over. We're in a new era global growth, uh, you're not going to be able to expand geographically for earnings growth anymore. So, you know, just get ready for less earnings.
1: All right. Fascinating and worrying discussion. Aswath the Motorin, thanks so much for coming in. You're welcome. And moving right along, Alex and I are now joined by Matt Klein, also of FT Alphaville, for a speed-ish round on Trump's potential macroeconomic impact. Matt, how are you? I'm all right. How are you? Okay. Uh, we are going to go through some of these topics just one by one. Boom, boom, boom. All right. You did some writing about this on election night on Alphaville. and We'll link to that piece for everybody to see. But here on the podcast, we're going to go one by one. First up, Trump and trade. So the interesting thing about the U.S. and trade policy is that over the years,
0: Uh, The president and the executive office in general has gotten a lot more power to negotiate deals without having to go through Congress. And it's ironic because this was done in the belief that it would be easier to negotiate trade liberalization without having to negotiate things line by line with legislators the flip side is that now if you have someone elected who has pledged to roll back a lot of the trade opening that we've had, it gives them a lot of power to do things unilaterally, like, um, especially when it comes to things like NAFTA, when it comes to uh, more obscure piece of legislation, there's something, the uh, International Economic Emergency Act, which has been used repeatedly generally for putting sanctions on terrorists and criminal groups, but in principle, you could use it against countries to either limit imports or put tariffs or other kinds of asset seizures. So... Uh, there's a lot of scope for someone determined to roll back trade to do so uh, without having to go through Congress.
1: Okay. And immigration slash deportation policy, does the president have the same kind of unilateral authority uh, or something similar to what he has on trade? So in general, the answer again is yes, because the laws on the books already allow
0: for, essentially it's a question of how you vigorously enforce existing laws. So one of the things that's been interesting and generally hasn't, didn't come up that much during this campaign is that President Obama's administration has actually been much more aggressive at deporting illegal immigrants than his predecessors in terms of hundreds of thousands of people in the course of 2009, 2010, 2011. Now, at that rate, it would still take something like 55 years to remove the entire stock of illegal immigrants, assuming you know it didn't go up, but. You could imagine someone essentially using that precedent and simply scaling up the level of operations uh, by a few extra hundred thousand a year. It would still not deliver the kind of what was promised of removing eleven million people at once, but it would have a you know significant impact. And uh, when people talk about the decline in the net inflow of Mexican immigrants to the United States, for example, and say it's no longer a problem, a lot of that is because. Of much more aggressive border enforcement and deportation as a, uh, under the Obama administration, particularly deporting people who are convicted of crimes unrelated to immigration. So property theft or violent crimes or so forth. So you could have easily imagine someone being more aggressive on that, essentially continuing and ramping up Obama's policy. And um, that's probably in the cards.
1: Okay. Trade is more obviously a macroeconomic issue. I think a lot of people sometimes regard immigration to be something that's more of a sociological issue. That's not quite right. Uh, give us a quick spiel on why actually immigration is itself also an economic issue. So immigration is
0: interesting because it basically, and, and trade actually, they work in sort of both sides of both supply and demand, where on the one hand you have more workers but you also have more consumers. So the net effect on living standards for people who are already here, the net effect on things like inflation and the trade-off between corporate profits and wages is not necessarily obvious. Uh, You could make the argument that and I think it's reasonable in this case that if you have people who are generally speaking, they are not having access to the social safe net because they're illegal. You have people who are generally concentrated in lower wage occupations, um, you have people who are trying to send remittances south, are probably going to have higher net savings uh, than other people who live in the United States. And so you can imagine that reducing that pool of people would be inflationary uh, relative to you know, moving other pools of people. So I think in that sense you could expect it to have some impact in terms of the the distribution of wages among workers you might have some impact on the prices of of products that are produced purport- disproportionately by you know by people in this cohort whether it's food service or agriculture products or construction you can see that flow through in different ways
1: in the simplest terms then right to the extent that Trump's proposals End up getting enacted and also end up restricting both trade and immigration. It amounts to a kind of slow-moving supply shock, right? So a supply yeah. shock usually, when it comes from the oil markets or whatever, happens all at once, and in some in some ways you can track its impact on trade and immigration. It would be uh, a restriction of supply and therefore a restriction of the potential growth rate of the U.S. economy.
0: That is that is correct. And one of the things you know, focusing on trade for a second. One of the, th- the channels that people say that trade is good for an economy, in addition to the fact that you know it, it imports the disinflation potentially depending on who you're trading with, but in general it expands the pool of competitors for products and that increases overall productivity. So to the extent that you're competing companies, domestic producers are competing less with foreign producers, they have less incentive potentially to invest in productivity enhancements. And that would be, again, something that's inflationary. And it's something that you've sort of seen already a little bit in the market reaction.
1: Yeah, that's a good set of point. Uh, Alex, turning to you, uh, we spoke earlier a little bit about Trump's proposals for corporate tax reform. He wants to lower the rates while also taxing uh, earnings abroad. Let's talk for a minute about income tax. uh, What is he suggesting, and what is the possible macro impact?
2: So this is one place in which he is very traditionally Republican, in that he proposes cutting taxes um, pretty much across the board individually, but the, the biggest effect will be on the top earners.
1: In both absolute and percentage terms, right?
2: Yes. And- I thought it was sort of interesting. The other day someone, I think it was on Twitter or something, said like, hey, well, at least like we're going to have a natural experiment about the ef- effects of supply side economics because we've got an entire Republican Congress. We've got incomes rising by some measures, 23 percent for the top earners uh, after tax. And that I mean, obviously, the you know very, very clear distributional impacts. And we'll have to see sort of what the ultimate effects are.
1: Okay, uh, and when you say supply side economics, you're referring to like the famous group of supply siders like Art Laffer or Larry Kudlow, who uh, were prominent in the 1980s for having said that they believed that tax cuts would eventually pay for themselves because the resulting economic activity would bring in enough revenue to offset the lower rates.
2: Right. And I have a little bit of trouble understanding that from the individual side. I mean, spending on luxury goods, of course, you know, maybe that has an effect. But so one of these things that he's also putting in place is a pass through mechanism. So if you have a company or if you're an independent contractor, you can actually now personally pay the corporate tax code or you would be able to if he actually implemented this. Um. So it's pretty interesting. I mean, you'd
1: pay a lower corporate tax rate because the corporate tax rate that he wants is lower than the individual personal income tax rate that you would pay under the current system.
2: Exactly. He's proposing a fifteen percent tax rate. I know. Uh, and just said, you know, he thinks he'll maybe get it down to twenty-five. Uh, but even so, that's still lower than the highest marginal tax rate for individuals. And also, I'm not entirely sure that Kudlow is a traditional supply cider, but. You know, beyond that, I would say, I think by the way, the way, that the more
1: salient point might yeah. just be that even most conservative economists who aren't yes. these guys don't think it's true that lower corporate, or excuse me, that lower individual income tax rates pay for themselves because of the resulting economic activity. Uh, I would point to what happened first in the 1990s when taxes went up under both uh, George Bush the first and uh, Bill Clinton, and we ended up with a productivity-driven, uh, you know incredibly impressive economy in the latter half of the decade. George W. Bush had much lower taxes uh, on rich people as well. Uh, In many ways, there are similarities between what Mm -hmm. Trump's proposing and what George W. Bush actually got passed in the earlier part of the 2000s. And we ended up with a relatively jobless recovery and then a financial market uh, catastrophe at the end of the decade, which wasn't related to that. But the point is that those tax cuts didn't generate like a really great economic boom either. It wasn't necessarily their fault But these effects that the supply side is reclaiming uh, didn't prove true.
2: Right. And I I think there's an argument to be made on the corporate side that reform is necessary and that we do have the highest corporate tax rate in the world. Um, But on the individual side, like I said, it's just really hard to sort of see the impact of that.
0: Okay. You know, just to play devil's advocate for a tiny bit, if, if I may, it's difficult without knowing sort of what the counterfactual is of what would have happened without changes in tax policy. What the actual impact is going to be in either direction, and so if the argument that's being made, which again it's hard to sort of evaluate, I am sure I'm just is.
1: saying that the other argument hasn't been proven hasn't been proven right. either. Right, right. I am not, you know, uh, I, the, the relationship here is, yeah, is absolutely is tough to discern. It's right. arguably unprovable in either direction. Right, okay, uh, Matt. This is related to something that uh, Alex just said uh, about taxes, though. Uh, let's look for a second about what happened in the two thousands. All right. We already talked about uh, lower income tax rates with most of that benefit going to the higher end of the income scale. I'm not even interested in like arguing the partisan back and forth here. right? Uh, we also had a couple of wars that were very expensive. And again, I'm not arguing uh, for or against the uh, usefulness or the importance of those wars. I'm just talking about the uh, impact on macroeconomic behavior, and also on the government finances. The deficit widened uh, quite a bit in the 2000s. Um, that on its own didn't seem like it was a huge problem because that decade was one where the rest of the world did seem starved for safe assets. At the same time, it did seem like a huge missed opportunity to use that deficit spending on things that would like boost the country's uh, potential productivity growth, uh, or just on rectifying some of the widening inequality issues that we ended up seeing? What do you think? I think that's
0: broadly right. I mean, in terms of the macro impact of those deficits, I think sometimes that's overstated by people who are opposed to them at the time. You look at the overall debt-to-GDP ratio for the United States, it was basically flat in the 2000s. It had been going down very rapidly in the 90s, and then it just flattened out at something like 35% or whatever. So in the grand scheme of things, those deficits weren't obviously too big. Um, the other thing, of course, as you mentioned, at the time, you also have a situation where there was this seemingly insatiable demand for investors, both uh, domestically and abroad, for safe assets, which essentially means U.S. government debt and things that people can be tricked into thinking are like U.S. government debt, such as agency debt. And um, to the extent that you know the deficits weren't bigger, it might have actually led to sort of a crowding in effect of all sorts of nasty mortgage-backed securities that people thought were as safe. The people thought were safe, right.
1: but the financial markets provided right. in lieu of uh, the government-issued right. debt. I
0: mean, you know, the duck's quack is where you have to feed them. So when the sell side is in a situation where all these people are asking to buy things that are like safe assets, they thought, well, why don't we create these things ourselves? And that didn't work out very well. And there's empirical evidence and research that not so much for these longer term stuff, but at least on the short-term debt side situation, that there's a very strong relationship between the supply of government short-term debt and private short-term debt. That's an inverse relationship. So the more government borrowing there is, it sort of crowds out um, what we th- think of as toxic short-term borrowing by financial institutions. And effectively, with government borrowing can actually increase financial stability.
1: Okay, real quick, uh, let's tie this to a Trump presidency. It looks like, all right, if he were to get all his stuff passed, that the deficit would further widen. The Republicans in Congress, uh, who pay a lot of lip service to deficit spending uh, while Obama was there, Probably would go along with it because they'd get the tax cut they wanted and then they'd sort of uh, frame it as a compromise because they'd also be giving Trump the infrastructure spending that he, and by the way, a lot of progressive thinkers, uh, a lot of Democrats also want and would have less of a problem with. Wouldn't we also be getting a kind of an experiment in what it's like to rerun some of the economics of the 2000s, um, but in the next four years? I think up to a point, I
0: mean, one of the things that, is tricky in terms of adding all the impacts up is to the extent that you're cutting taxes on people who already have very high propensities to save, you aren't really doing a lot to alleviate the imbalance between people's desire to save and people's desire to invest. And you're not really affixing-
1: Hence, missed opportunity, which right. also existed in the right. 2000s. Right.
0: I think, so in other words, if, if your concern is the supply of safe assets and all you're doing is creating government bonds by giving more disposable income to people who are just going to invest them in government bonds or equivalents anyway. That doesn't seem like that sort of fixes anything. Um, the infrastructure spending, I think, is a different situation. You know, how that actually plays out is open to anything because Trump has been very vague about most of his agenda, and I don't see why we should...
1: Yeah, exactly. What it actually looks like, the specific shape it takes, is going to be very important. Right. Uh, Alex, last topic to you, um, and it actually incorporates almost everything we talked about here today, both with Aswath and with Matt. Um Debt management, right, Uh, a favorite topic of yours, given everything you've just heard. uh, What are the range? What's the range of possibilities for what we might expect there?
2: Well, it could it will be very interesting to see, because on one hand, you do have an entirely Republican Congress um, and you have a president who who has paid lip service to wanting to spend more. So if it is short, like Matt pointed out, if it's more short term treasuries being issued, I mean, there's there's huge demand for it. Um, of course, a lot of that demand is sort of dependent on the global trust in America as the reserve currency and and as a you know go- to safe asset. But like some people have pointed out today that there there aren't that many better choices. So at least you know at least for now, I, I can't see it posing a huge challenge for debt management unless, of course, we're putting tariffs in place with the people who would be buying that debt eventually. It's going to be important, I guess, to sort of, like you guys said, keep in keep in mind how this is being implemented, what's being spent, um, and generally also, you know, remembering that someone has to eventually buy the securities that you are issuing.
1: Also, just a big difference between the bluster you can get away with on the campaign trail, and certainly from Donald Trump, there was a lot of that, and then the realities that you'll confront when you're in office. And despite Trump's general unpredictability, I think that's a lesson that he probably, even he can't. Escape entirely,
2: and it'll be interesting to see who he appoints as head of the treasury. to. I mean, all of that is very much in play. People are talking about Steve Mnuchin. Last time we looked at it, X maybe Goldman Jamie Dimon. Yeah, right. maybe Jamie Dimon. Apparently, which is entertaining too. But I think that the people he puts in place, it's going to be very important to watch and sort of, you know, figure out what their plans are. Because I, I have a feeling that they're going to be the ones really driving that train.
1: Okay, guys, Bat Alex, um, let's do long-form recommendations before closing out. Alex.
2: So I would recommend uh, President Trump's first term, which is from September from The New Yorker. Uh, Evan Osnos wrote it, and it's really deeply reported, really gives a good view on what Trump's advisors and what the people close to him were thinking far before the election when they still thought it was sort of a long shot.
1: Okay.
0: I would recommend Albion's Seed by David Hackett Fisher. This is not a new book, but it's a, a very detailed prehistory of the United States from about 1600 to 1775. And it traces the settlement of the United States from four distinct uh, regions and groups in England and how the different cultures and political traditions of those groups uh, ended up creating the country we have today.
1: Okay, and I'm going to recommend an article by Jack Schaefer at Politico arguing that the media is not, in fact, responsible for Trump's having been elected, and that actually there was quite a lot of really excellent reporting on the more problematic aspects of Donald Trump and of his campaign, but actually it turns out, and we should have known this, that voters are... An amalgam of competing interests. We all are. And that not one thing dominates for um, for anybody in particular or for wide groups of people. And so quite a few voters just discarded it. But they knew about it. The media pointed it out. They knew about it. They just didn't care. And they voted for him anyways. And that's it for today's show. Give us a call. Leave feedback at 917-551-5012. That's plus one country code for those of our listeners who are overseas. You can also email us at chat at ft.com. Please, please, please rate the show on iTunes. It helps people find out about us and it also is a valuable source of input. ft.com forward slash alpha chat is where you can find show notes for today's episode. Aswath Damodaran is at Aswath Damodaran on Twitter. And you know how to find Alex, Matt, and me also on Twitter. Finally, macroeconomic impact of a Donald Trump presidency is left to be seen. But the micro happiness impact of collaborating with producer and editor Amy Keene is off the charts. Thanks for everything, Amy. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat.